Hello and welcome. The Incomparable Christ of God. That's the title of our talk today on Search for Truth. And Search for Truth is your radio Bible study program with your teacher Brian Johnston. Today Brian's study takes us to a close look in Scripture to see and reaffirm to us the true identity of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll find it helpful and interesting. And here's Brian. Thanks, John. Yes, in this study we're looking at a single Greek word that's found four times in the New Testament. The word is pleurophoria and it means full assurance or total conviction. This means we're talking about things that are most surely believed among us. In other words, our core convictions. Americans often remind us that their country began with founding fathers who had great convictions. I've heard an Australian preacher say to his listeners that his country's founding fathers also had great convictions, but of a different sort. Of course, Australia began as a penal settlement for convicts sent from England over 200 years ago. Now, as we said, the theme we're exploring is great Christian convictions, and we're coming to the second of four things with which the Holy Spirit has connected the word we're studying. We find the second occurrence of the word in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul saying to the church in Colossae that he wants them to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Did you register the word there that we're tracking? The key translated words were full assurance. The context, as we've just seen, is all about having a full assurance of understanding about knowing Christ. The surrounding words emphasise the need for insight and true knowledge. Only a firm grasp of the truth about the person of Christ can help us defend against fine-sounding arguments. Persuasiveness and truth don't always go hand in hand, do they? If we've allowed ourselves to be persuaded by high-pressure salesmen, we might already be painfully aware of that. But in spiritual matters, I'm sure you've heard many forms of persuasive argument by people who've stumbled in their understanding over either the deity of Christ or else have stumbled over his complete and full humanity. Jesus Christ is the God-man. That's our total conviction based on the Bible as the Word of God, declaring to us the full deity of the actual man, Christ Jesus. It was the so-called Council of Nicaea, a gathering of religious scholars that affirmed the 66 books of the Bible as the canon of Scripture, as we have them today. And it also attested to the triune nature of God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But it was left to a later council, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, to affirm that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Of course, the scriptures alone teach us those things very clearly, and these historical events simply involve people groping in their councils to do justice to the teaching of the Word of God. Jesus Christ certainly is both fully God and fully man. Some years ago, when my son Michael was still quite young, we had a camping holiday on the outskirts of Paris 
and went one day to see the tomb of Napoleon Bonaparte. It's a very impressive sight, but it did remind me of something much more impressive associated with Napoleon. Some of the things that he said in the years after 1815 and after Waterloo. He was exiled on Elba and had time to think and reflect. And he spoke to some of the counts and generals who were with him and said, What do you think, gentlemen, about Jesus Christ? Now, their answer was somewhat non-committal. So Napoleon volunteered what he thought of Jesus Christ. He said, Christ alone has succeeded in raising the spirit of man to such a point that it becomes insensible to time and space. Across a chasm of 1800 years, Jesus Christ asks something that is very difficult. He demands the human heart, and forthwith it is granted. Wonderful, Napoleon said, that in defiance of time and space, the spirit of man with all his powers and faculty becomes an annexation of the empire of Christ. Napoleon contrasted that with himself. He said, I know what it is to command the allegiance of an army and to have people who will swear unswerving devotion to me. But he was no shrinking violet, he said, and in order to achieve that, I had to stand before them with the electric influence of my looks and my words and my voice. He could command the allegiance of other men by being present with them and standing before them. But he said, it's altogether different with Jesus Christ. Over a chasm of 1800 years, he demands that which is most extraordinary, that unconditionally the human heart be granted to him, and forthwith it is, he said. And he then concluded that this phenomenon is unaccountable other than if someone should believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's sometimes said that Jesus never claimed to be God. I want you to consider if that's an accurate assessment based on how the second chapter of Mark's Gospel opens. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum, he was speaking the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet. Surely there could not have been a more emphatic way for Jesus to press his claim to be fully God as well as fully human. He affirmed only God can forgive sins and then proceeded himself to do so. Added to this, we have Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where we read of Jesus described as being both our great God and our Saviour. And for the writer to the Hebrews, Jesus is addressed not only as Lord, but actually as God. That's in chapter 1 and verse 8. But equally, there's no New Testament writer who more emphatically underlines Jesus' humanity than the writer to the Hebrews, who tells us, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might deliver them. That's Hebrews 2 and verse 14. He had to be made like his brethren in every respect, if he was to be their effective high priest. 
We read it's not of angels that he takes hold, but he takes hold of the descendants of Abraham. Still in chapter 2, but verse 16. He sympathises with the weaknesses of his fellow men and knows how best to help them, for he himself has suffered and been tempted, tempted indeed in every respect as we are, yet without sinning. There's everything warmly and appealingly human in the picture of one who poured out his soul in prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and learned obedience through what he suffered. That's Hebrews 5 and verse 7. That same one who blazed the trail of faith and persevered to the end, enduring the cross and despising the shame, putting up with sinners' hostility, so that his people, profiting by his example, need not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 12 verse 2. The reality of Christ's humanity is on display here. And for good reason. Another ancient misunderstanding was called docetism, from a Greek word meaning to seem. This early heresy questioned Jesus' humanity, saying he only seemed to be human. This is equally in error, but has tended to be more tolerated, as when some say that from conception to birth our Lord passed through the body of his mother like water through a pipe, deriving no part of his humanity from her. To defend against such a view, how wonderfully precise the inspired writing of the Apostle Paul is when he says, in Romans 8 and verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Our Lord did not come in the mere likeness of flesh, far less in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh, fully human as we are, which as our kinsman-redeemer was required of him, but he was without sin and indeed incapable of it. Malcolm Muggeridge was someone who lived a very sensual life, but later in life, as far as I am aware, he was soundly converted to Christian faith. He said, In my lifetime I have seen my countrymen ruling over a quarter of the globe. I have seen a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim a German Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown claim that he would restart the clocks to coincide with his own assumption of power. I've heard that Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the world's intellectual elite as wiser than Solomon, all gone in a lifetime, all gone with the wind. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. And Stalin is a name that's forbidden in the country that he helped to found and dominate for three decades. But behind those sullen, self-styled supermen and imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure, because of whom, through whom, by whom and in whom humanity may have hope, the figure of Jesus Christ, the only hope for this world. And truly there's no other hope but in God's Son, Jesus Christ, the only one in whom we may have hope for now and for eternity, one who's fully God and fully man. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, There's only one name given under heaven wherein we may be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. And in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle John tells us that eternal life with God is not found in religion or in any system of thought, but it's found in a person. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Our full conviction is in Jesus Christ, 
God's Son, who declared himself to be one in essence with the Father. John chapter 1, verse 30. Now, there's a book which contains all the transcripts of the talks in this series, and it's available. It could be yours just by asking for the title Total Conviction. And you can do this by email or by post. And here's our postal address first. It's Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN4, 8DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info Now, would you like to receive Christ as your Saviour? I do hope so. If you need clarity and help in making your decision, then why not write in to Brian? You can talk via email. Remember, there's no middle ground. You either have Jesus and life, or neither. So be totally convinced, as I am since 1958. Hope you can join me uh, next week for another Total Conviction opportunity. But until then, it's cheerio and very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our producer David, our singers and me, John. So see you soon and may God richly bless you. Was great.